Before he built his fintech that serves exporters and importers, Max Falden of Silverbird had to work through the most difficult supply chain issues of all, that is, staffing his company and securing funding when COVID made face-to-face -face meetings impossible. Now on the other side of the pandemic, Max shares his perspective on a very unique corner of the fintech world, one that he's helping to build. And the two Ds have him here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. Dave and I are very pleased to host Max Folden, CEO and founder of Silverbird. Now, our audience have been very familiar with all of the vendors that we've spoken to about banking as a service and how their customers are embedding finance, etc. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Max, who's actually walking the talk as we say in the industry. So welcome, Max. Yes, hello. Both Dave and I are founders, right? So I'd love to hear about how you started Silverbird, but also tell the audience what Silverbird is. Silverbird is a fintech that serves exporters and importers around the globe. Our customers are exporters, international merchants, how we call them, from developing countries. Think about traditional businesses exporting rice from Kenya or shoes from Vietnam. Those are the customers that we serve and we provide them with online banking and high value cross-border transactions because most of our customers are wholesalers and they need high value transactions and that's what's notoriously bad in international financial system so it's kind of cross-border currency is that the main focus of the service that you provide yes cross-border payments for international trade customers because we are verticalized a new bank you can call us that way if you employ VC language that we are verticalized new bank so we only work with international merchants and only with those who move physical goods we don't touch anything like service or anything like that why is it limited just to people that move physical goods you need to know your customers it's a strategy we think i think that it's really hard to be everything for everybody early days people start this it's still early days for new banks but I think it's not that Revolut was starting and being like building super up for everybody. I think that's too generic and too too broad. Just the area of cross-border payments. I mean, not to make it too simplistic, but like how is this different to something like TransferWise? That's a good example. Wise is very horizontal player. They support payments for both individuals and businesses alike sending money in any country in the world for any reasons. They are very, very, very horizontal. So for us, it's only businesses, only exporters or importers 
only international trade customers and only large amounts of money for export-import contracts. That's our domain. And we believe it's a huge niche. And we are building supply chain bank. That's what we think in our own terms. It's very different from what WISE is doing. What did you see as the opportunity to get you started? Because it sounds like an area where you'd need to have specialist knowledge. Precisely, yeah. I was sitting in OCBC. That's one of the largest Singaporean banks. And in Singapore, they had three banks essentially. And one of the banks is OCBC. And I was trying to onboard eBay merchants, new customers to them. And they were telling me something very interesting. They were telling me that they didn't want those customers because those merchants, they receive more than 2% of the revenue, and I'm quoting from those guys, and over 98% of the problems. So they didn't want those customers in the first place. And that told me that it's time that it's a structural problem back then. And it's much bigger than much larger than it's just e-commerce or Southeast Asia, Singapore, or eBay. It's for any B2B cross-border payments. If you are not one million dollar plus corporation or not a very, very small guy, anything in between, and we are targeting merchants between one and 20 million, that's our sweet spot. There's no way to bank, and notably, it's exporters and importers who around the globe because in different estimates, between 6 and 15% of international trade, and it's a huge number, 15% of international trade is done by small-medium businesses. What is the challenge for existing banks to address this customer base? In order to support transactions, and especially cross-border transactions, and especially high-volume cross-border transactions, you need to understand what they call business substance. You need to understand what stays behind the transactions, what the actual business, or in our case, supply chain is. Global banks who are supposed to do the work, for them, there is no economic incentives to understand their small customers. They sit with large accounts, with 500 million plus accounts, And they don't need to go and understand each and every small, medium exporter knocking their doors. The same goes with local banks. Local banks often don't have the product. But when they do, they have so much legacy in all the systems they work with, on policies. It's not only technology legacy. You need to understand about it. Banks not only have legacies in technology or product, they have legacies in ways of doing things in policies, procedures, mentality. And it's really hard to overcome. When was the last time you saw bank innovating? In terms of the niche itself, traditionally, I would guess that it was quite manual in terms of understanding the risks of the customers who are involved. I'm just trying to get my head around the cost that would be involved in a bank trying to understand that. I can give the number. So to keep an account, regardless of the volume, Banks would spend between ten and 20,000 US or euros per year annually on each account, even the dormant one, because they still need to ask questions, review the answers, they ask another question. Apart from creating a bad customer experience, they also keep running a lot of costs. So I presume onboarding a client would be orders of magnitude greater than that. No, onboarding is actually the same. Okay. Onboarding or confirming the customer's business substance annually, that would be close to the same number. But still, 
it's quite expensive. Our numbers, we onboard the customers probably 150 euros per customer. What is the difference in terms of that delta? That's enormous. Technology, that's technology and data. Because we are vertical focused, it makes sense for us to use only solutions with only our particular niche. We don't need to develop one size fits all and it doesn't exist, by the way, in compliance. So a lot of things become much cheaper when you focus vertically. And that's the beauty of it. So to give you a concrete example, we're using bill of lading data. It's a combination of shipments and customs records. When you move physical goods from one country to another, you always leave a trace of shipments and customs records. A lot of this data is digitalized. So we purchase this data from multiple sources and we use this data to understand the business substance, the supply chain behind the customers. And we do it from the third party. So it's really hard to fake. Fantastic. How long has the business been going and how did you set it up? I started the company three years ago, but we launched the service about 20 months ago. Right. And that's reasonably quick. So how did you do it? Yeah, it's funny. When we launched the service, one of our product guys told me that he's never experienced and never seen anybody launching a global banking product with 28 people employed. Right. (laughs) It wasn't strictly true. First of all, we employed a lot of IT developers outside of our immediate employment, meaning that we employed contractors. And second thing, we launched an MVP based on currency cloud infrastructure. Today, obviously, we already have fully grown up product, still basic, but already multiple banking providers, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, we were running very fast and we still are. We're growing four and four and a half times year over year today. My challenge is that I speak to a lot of fintechs that often believe this tagline that they're a technology company with a license or et cetera, you know, and they must build everything for their advantage. And so I can see that the time to market that you've got is because you've embedded a solution from somebody else into your business. But at the same time, you know, the bits that you've got missing your building. So, I mean, that's absolutely the right way to do it. Yep. Looking at what you've built in terms of the proposition itself, I guess you started with the proposition and the problem statement and how you were going to solve that and then look to build the technology around that rather than the temptation to almost start with the technology and then work out what you're doing. Yeah, solution in the search of problem, yeah. Right, we started as a company that knows very well what the customer needs. We hit our product market fits very fast. We had first 40 customers, most of them still with us. And that's why we reach 1 million in revenue very fast, like eight months. Almost six months, we were very close to that. So eight months in total after the launch because of that. But to be fair, before we started, I had a lot of experience with this type of customer. Before we launched, we interviewed 185 merchants in nine countries. Countries like India, Vietnam, Turkey, China. And those interviews are still with us. I still ask my product people joining, read those interviews two and a half years old before launch interviews because it's a lot of comments from myself. Like I see the Indian merchants 
saying this is the problems with the banking system that I'm experiencing, and I'm commenting there, yes, that's very common, or no, I don't believe you, etc. Et Sounds like you started with a design thinking kind of perspective. Talking to customers or potential customers is always a great place to start, isn't it? I was going to say music to your ears, right, Dave? <laughs> completely, completely. Obviously, because my background in core banking, I'm still interested in why didn't you go for a traditional safe play? I'm going to say the obvious one is going to be Temenos, but it could have been Fiserv or Finastra. They've been here a long time. I can tell you why. Yeah. We tried Temenos and the first call I attended was the last one because in the first call there were like 15 people. I didn't even count from their side. And I thought, no way we are going to launch in any time soon with those guys. Because when you have so many people on their side, and we have the entire team of 28, <laughs> wow, ain't <laughs> just not enough of us <laughs> to deal with those people. So what about the technology side of it? What were you looking for specifically? We're looking for flexibility, most and foremost. Okay. We still had been able to find for instance, multiple banking provider solution for Cobank. It doesn't exist. I don't know about defensibility, but that's precisely where you need to build yourself to be able to share a piece of banking infrastructure to serve one particular customer. That's what we call payments hub. That's a piece of technology we are developing in-house. But the flexibility tomb provided us with very good understanding, modularity as well. Flexibility, modularity, and the third one, is ability to influence roadmaps. Because I don't think I'm able to influence roadmap of big, big vendors. Right. To my, I can. I have direct line with the founder, I have direct line with the CEO, my CTO have direct line with their CTO, so it works very well. Moving away from the core banking platform itself to how you're actually doing KYC and onboarding customers, you're using data which exists. I presume a lot of the proposition then, you've got machine learning and AI, which you're using to say where a company is doing what it's saying it's doing and giving you a view on the risk of them? Yes. It all starts with onboarding. After we've done with the old traditional KYC part, which is identifying UBOs, dealing with corporate data, etc., watch lists, sanction lists, etc., so we enter into the phase where we need to understand the business substance. In our case, we need to understand supply chain and we build supply chain intelligence on the customer. And the profile will inform our initial risk scoring on the model. And then it will be updated once the customer starts transacting. Because once the customer starts transacting, we see the counterparties and we do the same exercise with counterparties and their supply chain. And then we see where the supply chain overlap and when transactions start to happen at volume, we see whether the transactions happening in the supply chain we understand or we don't. If we don't, there are only two ways of action. One is we upgrade, update our understanding of the supply chain and we increase our knowledge of the customer or we raise a flag. So because something happening and we shouldn't be supporting it. So the beauty of that, it all works independently of the customer. The beauty of that, we don't ask quite a lot of questions. Once we receive questions inevitably from banking partners, we don't disturb the customers because we are able to answer most of those questions ourselves, giving comfort to our banking partners and to regulator ultimately without blocking the accounts, requesting paperwork, 
imposing limits and creating all this mess that traditional financial institutions will usually do when the question comes. So I presume the more you are in business, the more you'll know about what's going on. Yes, yes. It's a really interesting thought that you training a model, aren't you? Yes, yes. Any data-driven business is that way. You're training the model, as long as you have the amount of data, obviously, which we do. And that's one of my pitches to VCs, that the more customers we attract, the greater scale we reach, the more sophisticated our models become, the more fulfilled they become, and the less risky. Even if each customer, whenever they act to risk because they carry the risk with them, the risk itself, the total risk of the system, aggregate risk of the system, goes down because of that. Are you then using things like, you know, I have to ask because it's the technology de jure, but things like ChatGPT to understand a bit more about the softer side, the kind of publicly available information on businesses? Yes, yes. We started using ChatGPT in our compliance. I wouldn't say that it's something structurally there. We're using it, I think, quite occasionally. Like, for instance, we pass PDF data, and then we normalize it through ChatGPT. Right. Before ChatGPT, it was very hard to normalize PDF data. It's, it's easy to pass, but then you got mess instead of the data, and you need to normalize it manually or don't normalize it at all. You know, the more knowledge you have on your customers, the greater your competitive advantage. I mean, yes. if Dharma and I did say, oh, this is a great idea, let's start Silverbird version 2 today, we're behind the curve because we don't have the knowledge that you have within your platform. And then the more you augment that with other data sources, the better it becomes. Yeah, it's ultimately the number of customers, the number of data, the amount of volume you process because it's transactions, each transaction that's information itself teaching system that we are building and then in terms of the regulators this is a highly regulated business oh yes of course so how are you then interfacing with the regulators we just hold the email licenses everybody else does right okay very interesting you said that the business started like three years ago so you must have started in the middle of covid Yes, and that's why I did all these interviews, because I had time. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, there's my design thinking. Got that's out the window. But, uh. Okay, so how did you create the business when you couldn't visit people, etc.? Yeah, that was the question I kept asking myself. I was working a lot alone, just myself, and just building this deep understanding like you do with a dissertation or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was purely academic. Then I started talking to investors, to potential advisors, and I decided to raise a round, although we didn't need the money at the beginning. I financed it myself, but I will raise a small pre-seed because I needed advisors and other investors to participate and didn't want to be alone. The hardest part was to hire first people on the team because now we sort of, get used to hiring people remotely, entirely remotely. A few months after we started working with them in person, that's fine. But back then, the idea was wild. To hire a C-level staff without meeting them, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's just quite, quite strange. 
but that's precisely what I did because I didn't have any other chance. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge achievement to not only hire the team, but to raise some money all remotely. Yeah, raising money too, right? So you didn't meet your investors before you raised. But look, I raised money before and most of that money came from people I've never met. That's fine. But making hiring decisions, that's not something I had heard of before COVID. So where do you see the business going? I mean, like, what's your vision for this stuff in the future? What else can we expect from Silverbird? Right now, Silverbird is a payment company. We call ourselves a new bank. In essence, it's a payment company where we want to move further, still staying within this vertical of international trade to what we call non-payment financial products, which is for international trade, trade finance, LCs, letter of credit, countries' insurance, escrow accounts, and forward contracts. We probably start with forward contracts. So everything that needs to be there for international merchants to transact. And we would do partnerships. We won't develop the internal capabilities of financial product ourselves because we don't want to raise debt or take risks, doing all of any of that. We have enough on our plates. But the product itself, it will be this financial super app for exporters and importers around the globe. We call it supply chain banking and we want to monopolize supply chain banking, legally speaking, obviously. <laughs> Still within legal part of the, of the spectrum. I did have one final question, which is because of the sector, because you're looking at the movement of goods, are you then able to do things like augment your data with carbon emission data, for instance? So you can start looking at how much shipments are costing from a carbon point of view. So I read something today that mm -hmm. Amazon are going to start asking all of their suppliers to provide emissions level data. Yeah, we can definitely do that. We can definitely do that if we need to, if we think there is a value in that. We can definitely add emission part to this data information while we're onboarding the customers or while we're processing the transaction. Very interesting. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Congratulations for building a business during COVID and seeing the other side of it. So well done. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.